0: hmm Okay. And does the way you evaluate a given piece of music also change when it is associated with other forms of art, like, for example, uh, dance, theater, uh, movies,
1: and things like that? Well, one of the great difficulties, and but also one of the great treasures of, of the musical experience, is the fact that on a certain level, it's probably the most abstract of all the arts, right? Because if you were to think about what music actually consists of, on a physical level, it's, it's, it's what it's, it's disturbances in the air, literally, I mean, that's, that's what it is as a phenomenon. And then within those disturbances in the air, you have, uh, you have uh, events that are related to each other, according to some some form of abstract system of ordering. It's a very, very strange phenomenon. And to think that that can you know hold people completely captive and that they can be completely under the spell of that experience is 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 an amazing thing so you know it's 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 a it's an abstract enough experience that it can be difficult for a lot of people perhaps to to enter into it unless there's something that it connects to and so i've I've, I've actually made a habit of talking to audiences after concerts and just getting a sense of what they thought of a particular. Piece of music and just also getting a sense of the way non specialized audiences listen. Because if you talk to a professional after a concert and say, Oh, what did you think of that piece or what did you think of that performance? they'll respond to you using professional terminology. They'll say, You know, they'll say, Oh, uh, I liked the piece a lot, but uh, the performance was a little bit off. The rhythms weren't quite together. The, uh, the, the first trombone part was a little bit, the pitch was a little bit too low. Or whatever or you could or you know that the horn soloist wasn't so strong et cetera. so they'll be able to use professional terms or they'll be able to say um, they'll be able to articulate the, the the structure the form of the piece and, and the elements in a way that a non-specialized audience member probably can't so somebody who, who isn't familiar with the, the technical vocabulary of music what they tend to do is they map the music onto some form of a narrative or an image of some kind I've noticed that a lot of people do this it's a very interesting thing for me as a musician because I don't really listen in that way right because I, I have you know whatever 30 years of, of experience with music and and uh, so it's a little bit different for me but I find that completely fascinating so people will say well it, it sounded as though and then they'll tell this whole story this whole narrative in detail you know it's like well it reminded me of looking up at the stars at night and you know, being driven um, through a dirt road on a flatbed truck or something—like they'll come up with something really elaborate—and I'll think, "Wow, that's fascinating. Where did that come from?" And it's it's some memory of theirs that is somehow being activated by them by by the experience of listening to the music, and then that they they sort of map onto it. It's it's very it's very curious. So so to have some form of another medium that's um, added to the experience of the music. So it could be a theater aspect, it could be lighting, it could be a visual representation, it could be dance. I think that helps a lot of people because, first of all, you know, individuals who have actually really uh, developed their ear in other words, they have, they, have good, they have excellent musical hearing. They can distinguish between intervals. They can I- distinguish between uh, different types of chords, etc. They They know all the instruments of the orchestra. They can recognize those sorts of things. That's actually a fairly rare skill. Most people don't really have that. I think they listen to music more as a, as a, a much more um, abstract experience, that they need to relate to something else that they're familiar with. So having a visual dimension or a dance dimension, I think helps them to get into it. So there are certainly t- types of music that are sufficiently unfamiliar or sufficiently abstract that if you add this extra visual dimension to it, it suddenly becomes much more accessible to people. And there are musicians, by the way, who find that that's sort of like cheating. They're a little bit disdainful of it. They'll say, well, you know, it just, just it just detracts from the music. What you should really do is have a purely sonic, uh, musical experience without anything else sort of uh, pasted on top of it, because that's not, you know, fundamentally what the most important aspect of the art is. And I actually disagree with that. I think that if there's a way that you can make the experience easier to engage with, then I just don't see a downside to that, you know, particularly if we consider that broadening the range of people's musical culture and exposing them to a wider range of things and, and helping them to have intensely powerful and and really affecting musical experiences, I I don't see that that's a bad thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. So now I think that this is a very difficult question, but I will ask I will ask it anyway. From an aesthetic point of view, that is, as a form of art, would you say that music? should have a purpose. So, for example, there are people that say that art in general and music in specific should aim at beauty or or music more in particular should aim at uh, conveying certain types of emotions. So, would you say that music should fulfill a certain role or should
1: aim at a
0: certain goal or something like that?
1: Well, it has a purpose by definition, because if there were no purpose, you wouldn't do it. Right. If, if you didn't have a, a, any kind of a purpose in terms of creating a piece of music, you wouldn't bother. You would do something else. Instead, you do something more urgent, like, for example, uh, you know, uh, like go off hunting or or whatever. I mean, or, or building shelter or, you know, or, the, or some 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 contemporary equivalent of one of those activities, because obviously life is difficult and complicated enough that we don't necessarily, we're not going to engage in purposeless activities for the most part, you know. So so sometimes the 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 intended purpose and the actual result are at cross purposes with each other. So for example, um, you know, the person who's hungry might, might go and grab some junk food just because it's convenient and cheap, but it doesn't really uh, serve the purpose of providing proper nourishment, and it actually might leave them Hungrier than before because it hasn't really addressed what they actually need in order to keep their system going and you could say the same thing about about music there might be a piece of music that is completely uh, nutritionless in a certain sense it doesn't really offer you anything it's kind of empty and hollow but that doesn't mean that the person who made it didn't have some kind of a purpose in terms of making it but there's an extremely broad range of purposes so I mean you one of the things you said was you know does it have to have a particular does it have to create a certain type of emotional response uh, does it need to be beautiful, etc. Well, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And the, the whole question of, of, of beauty, well, that's, that's an extraordinarily difficult one to define. So there are certainly, I, I don't know that be- that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is, is beautiful. Exactly. I don't know that that's necessarily the right term. You know, you could say that it's powerful. It's, it's, it, it's deeply affecting, it's profound. I think there are moments of great beauty in the piece, but that's not the that's not the adjective that would come straight to mind when I think about it. Um, Whereas, for example, uh, an opera air by Puccini, you could say, yes, that's beautiful. Is it as profound? I don't know. So different types of music have perhaps different aims and intentions. They're trying to do different things. But again, if you had, if you had no purpose, you would, you would sit there lying on your couch. You wouldn't bother to make the piece in the first place. So, you know, fundamentally, by definition, yes, there always is a purpose of some kind. And I think that there are relatively universal dimensions to that purpose. And I mentioned this earlier, I think one of them is a form of transcendence, is a is a, is a desire to connect with something, something larger. And I think that that applies to people who would say that they are completely uh, non-spiritual. They're not interested in that sort of experience. They enjoy music as an, as an aesthetic phenomenon, or they enjoy it socially, or they enjoy it culturally, or whatever. But, you know, when you when you go to a collective event, such as a concert, and you, and you can see, you know, hundreds of people sitting there in silence, listening to something intently and being affected by it, I, you know, it, it, it strikes me that that is on, on some level, a, a form of a collective spiritual experience. And a lot of the music around the world, is actually a a very stylized form of religious ritual. Less so perhaps in a lot of Western cultures, or at least it's less explicitly so, but I think it still ultimately, on some level, fills that sort of a function.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, and would you say that music uh, represents something? Because we we already addressed that particular question a little bit throughout this conversation, and it's not as straightforward in music as in other forms of art. For example, we look at a painting, and even if it has different interpretations, it's pretty clear, I think, that it represents something that is what we see there, even if it has different interpretations, of course. But
1: uh, does music represent something itself? Okay, so a, a couple of things. So the first thing is, if you look at a painting by Cézanne of a bowl of fruit, mm-hmm. the painting is not fundamentally about the bowl of fruit. And if you look at a poem by Wordsworth, for example, uh, and it might be about taking a walk in the countryside, it's the same thing. The poem is not about taking a walk in the countryside. It, this is this is a, a, a point that is, that is, I think, important, but it's not always particularly well understood. So... The point is not to see a painting of a bowl of fruit. It's to see a particular, um, it's, it's first of all, to have an experience through listening or through, through interacting with the work of art. So it, you want it to affect you on some level. Secondly, there's, there's an entire play of colors, shapes, masses, uh, hues, values, uh, different types of texture, different levels of opacity. Etc. cetera, that, that are going on in the, in the painting. It has a whole plastic dimension to it that is extremely important, and, and it's not hard to make the argument, I think, and I would certainly make this argument, that a lot of what a painter like Cezanne is, is being motivated by is really sort of uh, is pushing the boundaries of his particular medium and seeing what it can do and seeing how far they can go in a particular direction. And so the the apples or the haystacks or the church facade or whatever it may be this is a incidentally this is a very common feature of impressionist painting these are pretexts you know it's it's the subject itself disappears in a certain sense because what what's really going on is they're they're attempting to they're attempting to present a new way of seeing a new way of experiencing and a new way of presenting something but the object itself is a is really a pretext for making the the work of art itself and I suppose you could say that if you, were to, if, if you were to look at the dimension of music there's two ways you could look at that. So one of them is there's a wonderful quote that I really like and I believe it's from Samuel Beckett who was is, who is talking about his experience of, of knowing James Joyce when Joyce was working on his, his famous last novel, Finnegan's Wake. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, Finnegan's Wake is, is a monumental work of fiction. Uh, by James Joyce that he spent, I think, 22 years working on. And it's extremely uh, difficult to read. And it uses a lot of uh, invented words and words that are made of combinations of different words in different languages and so on. And one of the things that Beckett used to like to say about that particular book is it's not about something. It is that thing itself. And you could sort of make that argument about music as well, that it's not A piece of music isn't about something it is that experience that's one of the thing that one of the the things i think that makes music so profoundly powerful is it's it's very difficult to say what it's about exactly um but what you can say is you can describe again you can describe it phenomenologically in terms of i had a very powerful experience listening to a piece of music but what is it representing well on, on on one level you can make the argument that music is a representational art. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So I mentioned earlier in our conversation that, that music can, through, through, the, through the dimension of melody, for example, music can, uh, can act as a metaphor for speech, or an elaboration on the idea of speech and speech patterns. And that in the same sense, uh, something, something like the phenomenon of rhythm is really a, a metaphor and an expansion on the idea of movement in space. So it's related to dance, it's related to walking, it's related to running, etc. If you look at Baroque music, you have a, a actually a relatively restricted range of simple rhythmic figures that are used in a broad range of of uh, of different types of broke music, so you have sort of triplet figures, ducka da etc. You have dotted rhythms, which are like dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum, and you have straight sort of like motor rhythms, which 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 are more like a duck ducka duck ducka 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 where it's just this sort of endless continuum of of, uh, of notes. And all of those are really metaphors for different types of experience. They're, they're metaphors for skipping, for running, for walking. The different tempi, the different sort of speeds of, of classical music are related to these things. If it's a fast piece of music, it's going to make you think of running, it's going to make you think of a certain type of dance, etc. So you could say that that's a form of representation, That in order that by having this particular organization of sounds played at this speed, you know, the performers who are on stage aren't themselves dancing and the audience members aren't dancing right so nobody actually dances to a broke sonata or dances to a you know a, a fugue or dances to whatever you know these these are these are extremely stylized forms of, of physical movements that are made in space and time so you could say that that's a form of, of metaphor or a form of representation and it, you can actually go quite far in that so I probably, I probably mentioned this the last time, actually, but I'll, I'll just quickly run through it again because I think it's an important point. If you take the music of Bach, for example, especially his, his religious music, the, the music is full of rhetorical figures and devices that, that have a very specific reference to something else. So, for example, in a chorale by Bach, if you have a, the use of a certain type of chord will be a metaphor for damnation, for hell, for confusion, for chaos. And then you have other other forms of of harmony that are metaphors for some form of elevation or for some form of of, uh, heavenly orderliness and things being in their right place. So there's nothing physically, acoustically in that chord where you can take it apart and say, well, objectively, you know, this chord has those properties. It's, It's a complicated phenomenon. So... Those are also aspects of representation, and by the way, they still hold true today. And if you look at a broad range of of sort of so-called art music or music that's intended for the concert hall primarily, if you look at commercial forms of music, if you look at popular forms of music, uh, you'll find all sorts of things in them that are intended to bring to mind some specific thing. A particular emotion, a particular form of movement, uh, et cetera, et cetera. A particular type of experience, a type of perception, you know. So, you could argue that those are representational.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so now I will ask you a question that you can restrict the answer to musicians, but you can also generalize it to other artists and other forms of art that is... Do you think that uh, art and artists in general, because even if they don't can't really explain how they do it, because the the ones that are there are at least good can do this. That is, they can create something that really touches and and even stirs the insides of people emotionally and also in terms of movement and things like that. Do you think that artists, because they can do that? It can also have a saying on human nature, even, even if not, of course, from a scientific perspective.
1: Yes, of course, because the artist who creates a new piece of work is, what they're really doing is they're they're illuminating some new fragment of the human experience that hasn't been brought to light before. So it's something that I, I suppose you could say exists in the vast ocean of potential. So in that sense, it, it sort of already exists. And what the artist does is they intuit that form. There's a quote that i love to i love to bring out which is from ezra pound who said that artists are the antennae of mankind in other words they're they're like uh they they have these feelers they can they can intuit shapes and forms that exist already and sort of and sort of breathe life into them and make them real and concrete and manifest them in the world so that's what i would say about that as to the effect that it has on other people and the and the emotional response that it has that's a that's a very complicated question because on the one hand I can start with an intention for a particular piece of mind. So I'm going to, I'll talk about my own experience because I can't really talk about the experience of other people, but I can start out with an intention. It might be to say, okay, I, I need to write a particular piece because I have a commission and it's got to be for X number of instruments and it's got to be ready by this date and it's got to be approximately this long. And these are the dimensions of the piece and that's the project. But as far as the, the emotional climate of that work, that's never something that I set out consciously to establish before I begin writing it. That's something that that I, I'm i not sure I have all that much control over, fundamentally, because what I do is I, I, I have to call upon my own intuition, my own sense of what is the right thing to do aesthetically, artistically, given the constrictions of this particular project. And I have to pursue that using using my own intuition, because... Fundamentally, when you're sitting down and, and writing a piece of music, that's that's all you have. You have your intuition, and you have your culture, and you have your technique. And those are the things that you, that you bring to bear on the creative experience. But there are dimensions of that that I think are opaque or mysterious even to the artist that's creating them. So very often, you know, uh, it can take me easily six months to write a piece of music. And when I'm in the process of making it, the, the first months especially, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know which way is up, which way is down. I'm, I'm intuiting shapes. It's like you go into a dark room, the lights are turned off and and your eyes are closed and you're just sort of feeling at these, these things that, that are in the room, you don't exactly know what they are. Okay, it's like if you were to go into a, a room that you've never been into before, closing your eyes and you just start touching the walls and the furniture and just, you have no idea how big the room is, you don't know if it's empty, you don't know if there's chairs if there's tables you're just sort of trying to figure out what's in it and that's what the beginning stage of writing a piece is like for me so I'm, I'm i'm trying i'm i'm aware i can sense that these forms are there but i don't know exactly what their dimensions are i don't know how they relate to each other i don't know what the expressive context is yet and then that starts to reveal itself slowly through a, a process of exploration of the materials and then eventually an aesthetic, expressive, emotional climate starts to manifest itself. And I have to say, I don't know that I have all that much control over it, because there's, I can't control where my intuition points me. And I can't control what the material wants to say in a certain sense, because I'm also listening to that. And that will, it's a reactive process writing a piece. It's not simply, I'm going to sit down and and come hell or high water, this is the piece I'm going to write and this is what it's going. It's not like that exactly. It's, it's, it's more like a form of exploration and, and play, at least for me anyway. And so when I'm, when I'm starting it, I usually really don't know what I'm going to do. And then retroactively when the piece is finished, then I can, I can say what it is. But I don't know that until it's finished.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. (laughs) Okay, so I think this has been a very interesting conversation and I would perhaps ask you just a final question because I think this is also very related to uh, our culture nowadays and there has been this discussion going around, not not just at the artistic level, but at all all other levels. That is, uh, what are your views about... Uh, the the things that modernism and postmodernism introduce to art and the process of creating art. Because, I mean, there are a lot of people uh, that say or or criticize modernism and postmodernism because they say that in a sense, or or they get the sense that uh, in terms, it is the art that gets created by modernists and postmodernisms is and postmodernists it's much less elaborated Uh, they don't pay much attention to technique and things like that so now putting aside perhaps because I already asked you this question before the part about the purpose because there are also people who say that after the modernist movement the purpose of art was, wasn't uh, of creating something beautiful, but something different from that. And they say that before it was just to create something beautiful. So what, what would you have to say about this?
1: Okay, so that, that's an important question. It's, it's a complicated one, but I'll do my best to answer. So the first thing is that a lot of people who talk about the terms of modernism and postmodernism in the domain of art... You have to be able to define those terms. You have to be able to distinguish them in order to know what you're talking about. So, so I've often noticed that because there's kind of a um, there's kind of a, a trope or a trend on on YouTube, for example, at the moment, of people publishing uh, videos against postmodern art, but they often get it wrong. They often will hold up examples of art that is in fact modern, modernist, and and say that this is a, a form of, of postmodern art. So you have to sort of understand what these terms mean. So fundamentally, I would say that that modernism in art is really an outgrowth of romanticism. It's sort of like late-stage romanticism. And, and what it is really, because romanticism is, is very interesting, what it really does is it, it puts the individual subjective impulse of the artist to the fore. This is the most important dimension, right? It's, it's my particular uh, individual experience as I've lived it myself and my own subjectivity, and and sometimes pushing that rather far. And so romanticism plus the Industrial Revolution gives you modernism really in, in, in the artistic domain. So what I mean by that is with, 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 the, with the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, you have this sudden dramatic increase in living standards and also in the ability to, to, to produce things. And, and also to, to produce a much wider range of things much more quickly and at arguably a higher level of quality than was possible previously, or that at least wasn't possible in a, in a strictly art, artisanal sense. So when you have machine production, you can, you can create more things and you can create them cheaper than you can if you have to actually sit there by hand creating them. And that had an incalculable influence on music as well. So things like the invention of the phonograph, the, the, uh, the record, the ability to record sound, this had an enormous influence. And so suddenly it became possible to, to capture recordings forever and, to, and to, uh, to have a much, much broader range of music at your disposal. So what that meant was you weren't restricted to the sort of narrow range of music that was being produced in your particular country or your particular region, but you could at least theoretically listen to music from all over the world with, you know, with equal ease, provided you had a record player and some access to recordings. So that actually turns out to be a very significant thing. So I would say that one of the defining ideas of modernism, the the defining ethos of of modernism is the idea of progress, fundamentally. So it's the idea that tomorrow is better than today. There's some some further point that we haven't yet reached that, that we can attain if we are willing to go farther in our artistic practice. So, with a lot of art, with a lot of artistic modernism, what you see is a sort of attempt to go further, to go beyond what's already been done. It might be technically, it might be expressively, it might be in the in the sense of trying to broaden the range of what's already been done in art by saying, okay, this domain here that um, that previously was thought to be off limits for artists, I'm going to explore that domain and see what's in it, and maybe there's something in it that's valuable and useful, and we'll find out. And so. So modernism has this idea of progress, of gradually opening up uh, the, the range of what art can do, and also of increasing sophistication and complexity. So, and you can see that very clearly. I, I mentioned James Joyce earlier. You can see that very clearly if you look at the overall progression of his art from his very beginnings to works like Dubliners, for example, which is you know a remarkable book, but it's fairly straightforwardly narrative, through to works like Ulysses, which is already getting to be very complicated, and then to Finnegan's Wake, his, his final novel, which is extraordinarily complex. It's so complex that it, it, it took literary scholars decades to sort of figure out everything that was going on in it. So there's very clearly a progression in terms of, I want to make the art more and more complex, and I want it to be able to do more and more things, and I want it to get more uh, more technically advanced so that each new work of art is is a progression beyond what I did previously. Okay, so that, that's a fundamentally modernist idea. So, I don't know that you really see that in the same degree in, in classical art, where it's more about perfection, it's more about uh, achieving formal balance about symmetry about uh, ideals of beauty and and grace and this sort of thing. Modernism is a is a bit of a different story. And you can't really understand modernism without understanding that it's 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 tightly connected to this idea of the industrial revolution of an in, increasing living standards of in, of increasing the ability of the average person to have a a higher standard of living. I think these two things are are really connected. So okay, so we, we've dealt with post, we've dealt with modernism a little bit. That's a very cursory definition, but that's the best I can do in the in the time I have. So, what about postmodernism in the artistic domain? Well, that's not terribly easy to define, but I suppose what I would say is that at a certain point, this uh, this idea, the, the belief in progress, right, the belief that you can keep on making art that's more and more complicated, that's more and more uh, that goes farther and farther. At a certain point. It starts to sort of turn around on itself, because you could probably argue that there's there's really only so far you can go until you've just completely violated all the possible rules of the art that you're engaging with. And then there's no rules left to break. There's no further domain left to explore because you've sort of opened the doors so wide that anything is admissible within the range of of your art. So then what do you do? so so there's there's a couple of ways that you can that you can react to that. So one one way is you could say, well, here are the things that have been done so far. But there are still areas left to explore. And there are areas that could perhaps be explored with more depth or more subtlety. Or there's, there, are, there are maybe specific uh, forms of art or, or types of emotional experience that haven't been delved into maybe quite as far. And you could, you could try doing that. Or you could say, well, all the rules have been broken. Everything's permitted nothing is forbidden so therefore everything goes and everything is equal so there's no longer any particular hierarchy in the in the values of what constitutes a, a work of art so you can you can do anything and call it a work of art and then the other corollary to that i suppose is that it creates a somewhat somewhat of a distancing effect because one feature of postmodern literature for example is the idea of a kind of ironic remove removal it's like there's a kind of distance to it so you, these sorts of writers no longer believe, really, in the idea that uh, that a work of art can be a directly uh, transforming experience. In other words, that you can have some kind of a uh, some kind of a, a, a one-to-one relationship with that work itself, and that it will that it will affect you strongly, and and that 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 process will be somehow placed within a, a sort of progressive vision of history. In in postmodernism, you have this in postmodern art anyway. You have this idea that the cultural products of the past are all there for the taking, and you can sort of you can sort of uh, steal whatever you want from them and combine them in any order that you want to, and and so you no longer have to care about the particular reasons for why a particular form of art came into came into being in the first place or what it might have meant when it was created. You can just sort of take it as an object as though you found you know uh, a broken. Spear over here, and then you found a, a Roman column over there, and you just sort of put them together, and you don't worry about where they come from. You just sort of think of them as as objects, and you try to put them together into something else. So, um, it's very very difficult, though, again, to uh, for me to cite examples of postmodern music because I, I've I've thought about this question. There is actually a book, a scholarly book that was published called Postmodern Music, which I which I bought and I read and I tried to understand it. But what they did was they looked at an extremely wide range of different types of music by different types of composers with wildly different attitudes and brought them under the same title. And in the preface to the book, they say, the first thing they say actually in the introduction was, it's impossible to define postmodernism in music. And then they go on to write a whole book about what that is. So I found that actually very confusing. Um, And so I'm still not actually entirely sure how I would define it. Although I suppose you could say again, that some, some form of, distance of of irony of leveling of hierarchies perhaps of saying that everything is potentially a uh, uh, suitable for a work of art that there is there's no uh there's no value judgments that are possible in terms of what you're going to put in and what you're going to leave out etc perhaps that would be reflective of a postmodern attitude but um that's that's as closest as i can come to a to a definition.
0: Okay, so just to close this off, would you say that uh, it is a fair assessment or that it is a fair critique when some people say that with the advent of modernism, uh, art changed in a way that it might have lost uh, something in terms of the criteria that it was supposed to fulfill in terms of technique and purpose that it previously had?
1: I think you can make that critique with regards to certain works of art, absolutely. But I don't think that you can apply that critique broadly to the overall domain of artistic production. No, I absolutely reject that argument because, uh, again, it reflects what I said earlier about these these videos of, of critiquing modern art or critiquing postmodernism as though that were a thing, because it's not a thing. You have to you have to critique a particular work. You can't critique an entire period. I don't think I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can say broadly uh, that the the entire production of a given period uh, has has something fundamentally wrong with it, and this is what it is, and I'm going to diagnose it because it's 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 far too heterogeneous. There are way too many different practices uh, being carried out today by different artists from all over the world uh, who have completely different aims and intentions. For someone to be able to say uh, broadly speaking, the art of today has, has X, Y, or Z wrong with it. So, no, I don't I don't think so. But So, I, I think the only productive form of critique is really to look at individual works of art, try to understand what the intention was of the creator, try to understand whether the work of art is in phase with those intentions, try to understand whether it's successful on its own terms, and then maybe you can look at what those terms are and, and whether you as a critic agree with those terms. But I think that's about it. So I've I've had I've had this, I've made this comment often on my own YouTube channel and I've I've often repeated it in interviews, which is that uh you, you can't speak in general terms about the phenomenon of contemporary music because it's a meaningless term. It's a straw man. It's it's as though it's 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 as it's as meaningless as saying, for example, the problem with today's people, it's the same it's the same sort of argument. You know, the, the problem with The problem with uh, people in France today, the problem with this or that, it's like, no, you have to speak in terms of individuals, you have to speak in terms of a particular context, you have to speak in terms of the aims of the artist, etc., and then you can start to have a a real critique. That's not to say that there aren't broadly visible uh, tendencies, by the way, in the art world, because there are, and there are certainly institutional and cultural problems that need addressing, and critics can, can do that to some degree. But you have to be very specific, I think, in your terms and in your thinking, and you have to be able to put things in in context and not merely uh, critique something impossibly broad. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: so Mr. Andreev, just before we finish this conversation, which was very interesting, by the way, and very stimulating, I already referred to your YouTube channel, and I will leave that in the description box, and our first conversation as well. Would you like to share again with people where they can find your work online?
1: Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, which you can find by just searching my name. It's probably the easiest. So it's Samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L. Andreyev, A-N-D-R-E-Y-E-V. And so that's my that's my YouTube channel. You just type it into, into YouTube and it'll come up right away. And then I'm also on Twitter, at Samuel Andreyev, all tied together. And, um, and so those are probably the best ways to follow what I'm doing.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, very good. So Mr. Andreyev, thank you again for taking the time. It was a very interesting conversation.
1: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And thanks for the very interesting questions.
0: OK, thank you very much.
1: Hi everybody,
0: thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and consider making a pledge if you like the work that I've been doing. And I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsson, Lau Guerrero, and Chantal Julines. Thank you for all.